And today, that was sort of like a mini break from our mini uh, sermon series. Today, we are back in our sermon series in Titus. And uh, this is our last week in the book of Titus. It's really short, and we're going through chapter 3. If you are a planner, if you'd like to plan ahead, just to give you an idea of what's going to happen. So the next few weeks, we'll have a few random sermons on different topics. But then, uh, in uh, mid-September, we're going to start a new sermon series uh, going through women in the Bible. And I'm pretty stoked about this. You know, over the past several years, uh, the, the church in America, you know, has gone through a lot. And uh, there have been a lot of national conversations about what sort of role should women have in the church. And so we're going to be touching on that a little bit, um, and, uh, but more than just that. Uh, we'll talk about the stories of women in the Bible and how God uh, ministered to them and how God met them and how God uh, mobilized them to do things for his kingdom. <clears throat> and so uh, we'll be learning about how God views women and how women can flourish in churches today. So that's uh, looking, you can look forward to that. And then similar related to that, you know, earlier Christy mentioned this women in church leadership a seminar. Uh, I encourage you to be there if you can, you know, over the past several years. I've personally on, been on this journey trying to figure out uh, how I understand the role of women in the church, and I wish I had a seminar like this when I first started that journey, so uh, be there if you can. Well, I'm going to pray, and then we'll dive into today's sermon, which is in Titus chapter 3. So join me as we pray. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for this time, this chance you've given us to uh, um, worship you, to fellowship with one another, to uh, enjoy uh, the, your presence as well as the presence of your community, your church together. We pray that you open up the word for us today, that uh, you would allow us to um, understand and to experience uh, how radical this peace is that you give us and how this peace has the power um, to change not only our lives, but the lives of those around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 2000 movie, Miss Congeniality, uh, Sandra Bullock, he, she plays this FBI agent, and uh, she takes on this cover of being this beauty pageant con, uh, contestant. And uh, the, there's a guy with a microphone, he's interviewing all the beauty pageant contestants one by one and asking them, what is the one most important thing our society needs? And one by one, they all, in stereotypical fashion, they go, world peace, world peace, world peace. And then it's Sandra Bullock's turn, and she goes, uh, that would be harsher punishment for parole violators. And then there's like this long, awkward pause. And then she goes, and world peace. And then people applaud. That's a, it. So anyways, I, I think about that because, you know, I'm thinking about this concept of peace. This idea of world peace, it's, it's like this running joke now uh, in, in today's society. It's like one of these things that everybody wants. Everybody, you know, no one would say, I don't want world peace. We all think world peace is good. But we all sort of recognize this is basically an impossible ideal that we can never reach. And it's, it's this grand, theoretical, fantastical idea. But I think deep down inside, even though, you know, that's out there, uh, I think in our culture, we still talk about it as this thing that we should still yearn for. You know, and that's why we have, recently we recognized the 60-year anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech by Martin Luther King Jr. You know, that was very much in that vein. You know, we have songs like Imagine by John Lennon or One Love by Bob Marley. Like these songs, they're, they're, they're yearning for a day in which people, uh, they genuinely love one another, they care for one another, there's no more war, and there's world peace. That's essentially what we're looking for. And there's even like, you know, phenomenon like 
uh, Ron Artest was this NBA basketball player. He changed his name to Meta World Peace. And so you have these, it's this movement that penetrates all spheres of society. People want world peace. And, you know, sometimes world peace is too broad of a goal. And so sometimes people, they focus on certain aspects of peace. So, for example, in the 60s and 70s, you know, millions of Americans, they protested uh, America's participation in the Vietnam War and peace, uh, you know, the, the symbol of peace that we sing about, you know, that became a very prominent thing people talked about. And in the past several years, a common chant said by protesters across the country is no justice, no peace. You know, so people, they're still yearning for peace. They're still elevating this as this is the standard by which our society should live, right? But, he, but uh, peace never comes. Um, the exception, of course, is for those who pass away which is why when people pass away, we often say, may you rest in peace. Because it's this understanding that finally, at the end of your life, you're able, you're able to achieve the thing we were you know, working for this whole time. Now you finally have peace. Well, the Bible has a thing or two to say about peace, and that's what we'll be talking about today. What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to be people of peace? Okay, so... Uh, Paul talks about this in Titus chapter 3, and what I'm going to do is we're going to outline uh, this. Here, actually, here's just a quick outline. If it, we're not going to read everything, but we're going to read most of it. Uh, so in verses 1 to 2, uh, Paul talks about how we should be at peace with those outside the church, and in particular with the secular government. And then in verse 3 to 8, he gives a theological foundation for why we should be at peace. It's because God first made peace with us. And then uh, in 9 through 11, Paul talks about living with peace with insiders, but those in the church. And then he closes the chapter with some final greetings as he does most of his, uh, of his books. So here's what we're going to do in this sermon, okay? So um, we're going to talk about the, uh, the concept of peace first, talk about what biblical peace is, sort of an overview of what the Bible says about peace, okay? And then uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the first section, what does it look like to have peace with outsiders? And then we're going to look at the third section, what does it look like to have peace with insiders? And then we'll go back to this long section, number two, okay? So we're going to jump around a little bit, but I think it flows better in our modern context like this. Okay, so first off, what does it mean to have peace biblically? What does it look like to live out God's value of peace? And how might that be different than a worldly understanding of peace? You know, the, uh, the Hebrew word that is often translated peace is shalom. But shalom is much more multifaceted than our English word peace. It connotes wholeness and rightness. So, for example, in Job 5, 24, sometimes my clicker is a little, okay, there it goes. Uh, Job 5.24, it goes, You will know that your tent is secure. You will take stock of your property and find nothing missing. So this word secure is actually shalom. And so the author, so this happens a lot in the Bible, where there's this, because this word shalom is so complex, English translators, uh, they, they look at this and they often don't choose the word peace because they're saying, oh, in this context, it's actually not really about peace. It's about something else, okay? But it's all one word, shalom. And so in this context, the author is saying that your dwelling place is essentially at peace. It's whole. It's right when everything that belongs there is present and nothing is missing. So it's that idea. Here's another example. First Kings 9.25. This follows several chapters in which uh, it just outlines Solomon building the temple. 
He builds a temple, and then he prays for the temple, he dedicates the temple. There's a few, you know, talks about some of Solomon's accomplishments. And then we get to this verse, and it goes, Three times a year, Solomon sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar he had built for the Lord, burning incense before the Lord along with them, and so fulfilled the temple obligations. And so this last line, so fulfilled the temple obligations, it literally means he shalomed the house. It's a verb form of shalom, and it literally the, the, the verse literally reads in Hebrew, he shalomed the house. So what does that mean, that he shalomed the house? Again, it's about wholeness. It's about this idea of saying, now the temple is complete. Now the temple is whole. Everything that should be there is there. Um, in his book, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, Cornelius Plantinga, he writes this. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as this creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. The way things ought to be. And so it's kind of hard to... Uh, we don't really have a word for this in the English language. I mean, utopia is kind of similar. But it's just idea that... It's, you just everything that's supposed to be there is there and everything that's not supposed to be there is not there and everybody's holistically pure and clean and righteous and good and and there's and, and there are these connections and networks that bring people together that's this picture of shalom unfortunately as we all recognize the world is not the way it's supposed to be and so we do not have shalom we have stuff like poverty and sickness and war and abuse and all of these remind us on a daily day basis that we do not we do not have shalom um, and i think this is important because sometimes we think of peace as just the absence of conflict and so if we are not bickering if we are not arguing then we say oh we are at peace but i would say that's a shallow definition of peace that's not true shalom because true shalom is not just about not having issues or not having bickering. It's about unity and wholeness. You know, you can have a married couple that never argues ever, but they may not have true peace. Uh, you can have a church where there are no disagreements ever between its members, but you, they may not have true peace. Because just because there aren't external conflicts doesn't mean that there is internal peace. Shalom is more than just the absence of conflict. It's this culture of unity and wholeness. God's standard of peace is much higher than just not having conflict. You know, the reason why I'm bringing this up is, you know, it can, be re it can be easy to read Titus 3, kind of like a checklist. So there's a lot of things that Paul will talk about that we'll talk about in a bit. You know, do this and don't do that. But I think all of these are just surface level symptoms of shalom. Okay, so he's not saying do these things to the T. He's talking about here's this picture of shalom. This is what shalom looks like. This is, if there's a community with shalom, this is how that community appears. Um, so I want to encourage you to keep that in mind. Don't just think, am I doing this? Am I doing that? But think about what kind of person will I be, would I be to do these sort of things? Okay, let's talk about the first application, peace with outsiders. Let's read Titus 3, 1 through 2. 
Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. So as you can see, one of the requirements or one of the uh, commands to people who follow Jesus is that they are to uh, be peaceable and gentle with everyone. They're to, be, they're to live peaceably with outsiders, people outside the church, with co-workers, with neighbors, with classmates, with friends, even strangers. We don't want to be bickering or quarreling or rude. We want to display our lives in such a way that uh, elevates this gospel of peace. And, and there's a specific note about rulers and authorities, this applies also to our interactions with the government. You know, there are um, some Christians out there in today's world uh, who sort of make it a big display to disobey the government. And, and well, this, is, this gets in a little weeds a little bit, and it's a little nuanced, but I'll say one side and then I'll say the other side, okay? So, for example, you know, when our country, a few years ago, we started these social distancing policies and our masking policies, you know, there are some folks out there, they, they deliberately disobey these policies and, and they made a big scene out of it. And so to me, you know, everyone has their own convictions. To me, I think that sort of attitude doesn't line up with some of the principles in this passage. It doesn't seem peaceable to do things like that. I think it reflects poorly on the gospel when we try to deliberately disobey the government in very drastic, you know, uh, public ways. That's just one example, but I think it's reflective of something bigger that goes on in the modern church, which is that sometimes many people they have this us versus them mentality when they view the secular culture when they view the secular society when they view the secular government they think you know this is us and we do our own thing and, and that's you you do your own thing and you're our enemy and so we need to stand up against you and we need to rebel against you and we need to fight against you. and so we have that sort of mentality sometimes in the culture and we might even think, like, why would I even collaborate with you? Why would I even work with you? Why would I partner with you? You're not with us. You're just getting in the way. You're all going to hell anyways. And so sometimes people in the church, they have that sort of mentality. But I think this passage contradicts that sort of mentality. I think Paul encourages us to live at peace with gentleness with outsiders and to even be obedient to secular government authorities even if it inconveniences us sometimes. You know, um, there's this quote by the late Tim Keller that he writes in Center Church that I love, and he says, Christians are indeed citizens of God's heavenly city, but these citizens are always the best possible citizens of their earthly city. And I love that. What he's getting at is, you know, sometimes Christians have this reputation of, um, you know, they're so concerned about getting to heaven, about thinking about heaven, that they're unconcerned about the things of this world, things of this earth. And so they don't care about our government, they don't care about our education system, they don't care about, you know, uh, poverty, or they don't care about our planet. So they're just thinking about the things of heaven, right? But they forget that Jesus spent 30 years in our world, walking along our earth. And, and, the message of the gospel is not God is sort of just, he's just taking people out of earth, but he's actually, the message is that God descended in bodily form into our world and he lived among us. And uh, I think that should show us something about the character and the heart of God, that God loves our world. 
He loves to uh, uh, heal our world. He loves to redeem our world. He is in our midst, even to this day. And so I don't think heaven and earth need to be in direct opposition with one another. Like just because you choose heaven doesn't mean you have to neglect earth. You can be a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth too. You can live for God and live for people too. You can, in fact, I would say the more you love God, I think the, the natural progression is the more you will love the people that God created. But with all that said, okay, so that's one side of things. Here's this other side of things because... And this could be a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's important to go here because sometimes people may look at this passage and they may ask, does verse 1 mean we should always submit to governing authorities and always obey governing authorities no matter what? Okay? Are we to always obey secular rulers no matter what? And, and this is where it gets a little bit of nuance. I think the answer is actually no. Even though this says obey governing authorities, I think the answer is actually no. And the reason why I say that is because there are many biblical examples of people who did not obey governing authorities and it seems like they were doing the will of god so for example in joshua chapter 2 the king of jericho told rahab hey there are these spies who are with you can you bring them out and so what rahab now did i say rahab okay rahab okay and so rahab what she does is she lies that's an ethical conundrum she's she says oh these people they were with me but then they moved on she lies she hides them and then she lets them escape so what does she do she deliberately disobeyed her governing authority okay another example daniel 6 the king of persia okay said he announced this decree everyone needs to uh no one can pray to any god except for me that's what the king said and so Daniel, what did he do? He prayed three times a day to Yahweh, his own God. Okay, again, he deliberately disobeyed God, uh, the, his governing authorities. In Acts chapter 5, the early apostles, they were told by their governing authorities, do not preach about Jesus. And Peter, this is what he literally said. We must obey God rather than human beings. Okay, so in all these circumstances, you have clear examples of people who chose not to obey their governing authorities. They disobeyed the rulers and authorities. So is that a contradiction? Now what do we do with that? What do we do with the fact that here in Titus it says, obey your governing authorities, and then we have a lot of examples of people who don't obey. I think this is an important lesson for us, uh, and this is why we're going in this direction. I think it's important to read the Bible with nuance, to read the Bible in its context, and to understand that sometimes the things that we read in the Bible, they're not hard and fast rules for every occasion, but they're laying out general principles for our lives. Sometimes these commands in the Bible, they're not to be followed blindly in all circumstances, as if like this is like a proof text, like we treat it like a science textbook. Like This is true all the time in all circumstances, but sometimes they serve as guidelines that are meant to be followed in most, most circumstances, but sometimes there may be exceptions. You know, it's similar, I don't know if you watched the Pirates of the Caribbean, Hector Barbosa, one, at one point, he's, he's talking about the Pirates Code, and he says, the code is more what you call guidelines than actual rules. And I think this is true of some passages, okay, not all, because I do think there are some passages of Scripture, they're true all the time, okay, but there's some passages of Scripture, I think you're supposed to read them more like guidelines. You know, in Titus chapter 3, it's talking about God's heart for peace. We want to be living peaceably with secular uh, society, with secular government. I think that's a guideline. 
However, there may be circumstances in which living peaceably with secular society and secular, and, and secular government, it may actually lead to harm. It may actually lead to injustice. It may actually lead to selfishness and so on. And so you got to balance these things out, you know? So you may look at other passages of scripture that reflect God's heart for justice or righteousness or these other qualities, and you may need to discern in any given moment, okay, what is the best course of action right now? Uh, does this situation warrant me disobeying the secular government because I need to honor another aspect of my faith? And, uh, and I think that's why uh, it's important to understand living peaceably is just one aspect of shalom. Because if you're just thinking about peace and just this absence of conflict sort of framework, then living peaceably will actually sometimes lead you away from shalom. Because true shalom is a place in which you, know, you say, you know what, I want to protect the vulnerable, for example, and so I need to stand up. And, and, and so this, for example, is, was uh, made clear in the civil rights era. Martin Luther King Jr., he actually wrote about this a lot. He wrote about how there are just laws and unjust laws. And he says, we are morally obligated, actually, I'm going to, here's a quote, okay? This is from the letter from Birmingham Jail. He says, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws and there are unjust laws. I will be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Okay, and so to Martin Luther King, this is his framework, all right? There is the law of God or the character of God and that is his standard by which he lives. Okay, and then below that, there is a secular government, and the secular government has some laws that are in sync with God's law and some laws that are not in sync with God's laws. And so he feels obligated because his standard is not the secular government's laws, it's God's laws. He feels obligated to obey some laws and not obey other laws. And I think that's a good framework to have, is that sometimes we are to obey the secular government and if it lines up with God's laws, or you can, you can say if it's a neutral law, meaning it doesn't cause you to sin one way or the other, it's just you just want to be a good witness and you want to live peaceably, so you obey this law, you can do that. But if there is ever an opportunity, sorry, if the law ever calls you to run against God's law, then that may be an opportunity to disobey. Because the goal is not just to live peaceably at the surface level. The goal is shalom. All right. Okay, let's move on to the second application. So that's peace with outsiders. Let's move on to peace with insiders, those in the church. This is verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. Okay, so... In Paul's day, you know, some of the hot-button theological issues were things like genealogies and the law of Moses. Okay, so most Christians today, that's not like at the top of our list. When we think about hot-button issues, we don't think about those sort of things. We might think about, you know, secular politics, speaking in tongues, sexuality, maybe in some circles, the age of the earth. Okay, so these are the sort of the hot-button issues that, you know, Christians talk about today. And I think this is the same point, this is similar to the point that I made earlier. 
I don't think this passage is saying don't ever talk about those things. I think what this passage is saying is uh, the church should not be so obsessed over secondary issues that it causes division. I think that's Paul's point, right? So this isn't a hard and fast rule. Don't ever talk about secondary issues. I think it's saying do not allow these, do not allow your opinions on these secondary issues to create such a spirit of division within the church that you are being divisive and you're being uh, uh, argumentative and combative toward one another in the church. You know, I was talking to someone a few weeks ago, and uh, this guy, he just graduated from college, and he was, a, he was like my brother's friend, and uh, he was thinking about going to seminary. He was thinking about going into ministry, and so my brother just connected him with me because I was in ministry, and we were talking about different seminaries, and he made this comment, like, the, you know, the pastor at the church that I go to, he went to this one seminary, I won't say the name, because I don't want to get in trouble, okay, but the pastor said, his pastor said, uh, you know, I went to this seminary, but I don't recommend it, and he's like, why? And he's like, oh, because the people who go to the seminary, they become very narrow-minded, and the churches they lead, they're often going through church splits because they're very divisive, okay, and so, again, I won't name the seminary, but you know, you can probably sort of guess. But, uh, but I thought of that, and I was like, man, that's just so sad. Um, that that's the reputation of the seminary. That people go to the seminary, and they come out being divisive. And they come out, and churches split because they're leading these churches. Um, and I think that's reflective of what's going on in Titus 3, where Paul says they are self-condemned. What does it mean to be self-condemned? It means, you know, Jesus, he says you can judge a tree by its fruit. I think what it means to be self-condemned is people look at your life, they look at the carnage you're leaving behind, and then they say, you are condemned. Like, I, the, the theology you have, the life you have, the values you have, I don't want that. Because look at the fruit you are bearing. You can see a person, a church, or even a whole seminary leaving a huge trail of division and what that does is it condemns itself. That institution condemns itself. And people look at that and they go, I condemn this. This is not what I want. Now, to be clear, like, I am, you know, one of the biggest Bible nerds out there. Well, at least I want to be, you know, one of the biggest Bible nerds out there. I love getting into the weeds of some of these theological issues. I, I love diving into secondary topics. And I love dialoguing with people who disagree with me on these sort of things. And so I think this verse, so I'm not saying don't ever do that, but I think this verse is a caution to people like myself that we need to watch ourselves. We can't let our passion for theological precision to get in the way of peace. You know, sometimes we think that peace is, uh, and I think what this passage is talking about overall is, you know, sometimes we think about peace as this me and God thing. You know, peace is just, if I have peace with God, then I'm good. Once we're Christians, we just make sure, like, God and I, you know, we're on the same page. We have good vibes. We don't need to worry about everybody else. We're okay. But I think what this passage is showing us is that we also need to be concerned about peace with people. It's not just about you and God. It's also about you and other people. And that's why Jesus, you know, this is a passage that, you know, I've thought about a lot and always... Sometimes I still do like a, uh, 
you know, like I, I get taken aback by this. Like Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. And the reason why this has always struck me is because, you know, we're always, I was, you know, trained to believe God comes first. Everybody else is second. Not, you know, that's true. But what Jesus makes clear here is you cannot have a flourishing, thriving relationship with God if you also do not have flourishing, thriving relationships with people around you. Jesus makes clear it's not just about you just have this thing with God and you can privatize that, you can compartmentalize that, and you can live another way with other people. You gotta, you, you're, or then another way to think about it is there's a direct connection between our peace with God and our peace with other people. You can't have one without the other. You can't have peace with God without peace with others, and you can't have peace with others without also peace with God. You know, earlier we talked about how we all want world peace, but it's always out of reach. And why? I think the heart of it is that it's because humans are broken people. You know, we are people, it's kind of like we're a bunch of people with a substance abuse addiction. And we're trying to get, give each other tips on how to get clean. We can't. We're in the same problem ourselves. We can't get clean ourselves, so how can we help others get clean? And it's the same thing. We are all internally non-not peaceful people. And so how can we achieve world peace? The current Dalai Lama, he once said, through inner peace, genuine world peace can be achieved. In this, the importance of individual responsibility is quite clear. An atmosphere of peace must first be created within ourselves, then gradually expanded to include our families, our communities, and ultimately the whole planet. And so what he's saying is, in order to achieve world peace, you first, at the individual level, you must have inner peace. Or another way to put it, I've heard it said this way, in order to change the world, you must first change yourself, right? It's that concept. And I do think that's right. I don't think we can achieve world peace unless we first experience inner peace. But then the question is, how do we first experience inner peace? And this is where I think I might differ with this guy. And this is where I think Christianity sets us apart. The Christian faith offers something that the Dalai Lama doesn't, which is the true path to inner peace and therefore the true path to world peace. And here's the middle section in Titus 3 that sort of wraps us all together, okay? Verse 3 to 8. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and prof profitable for everyone. Okay. Why in the world would a group of people resolve to live with peace in the middle of a world full of violence? That only makes sense when Jesus is in the picture. Even though we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved, malicious, envious, hateful, Jesus came and died for us. He made peace with us. And that changes everything.
You see, when Jesus, whom the Bible calls the Prince of Peace, when Jesus walked among us, he taught us how to turn the other cheek, how to love our enemies, to never stop forgiving. And then he didn't just stop with teaching us. He walked the talk. He did just that. When he was being killed, he turned the other cheek. He loved his enemies. He never stopped forgiving until he died. And in the great irony of history, the violent death of Jesus was the means by which we were granted peace. And this peace has two dimensions. There's a vertical dimension. We now have shalom with God. We are right with him. We are united with him. And then there's this horizontal dimension. We can now have shalom with other human beings. We can be right with other human beings. We can reconcile with other human beings. We can be united with them. And so as we live with peace with people around us, both with those outside the church, with those inside the church, what we do is we are literally living out this gospel of peace. We are putting on display this gospel of peace. We are declaring to the world it is possible to live with peace in a system of violence because that's what Jesus did. We manifest the values of the kingdom here on earth. The pattern of Jesus in which he came into this world full of suffering and pain and violence and death, and he did so with this attitude, this heart of peace. That is the same value set that we carry when we do the same toward outsiders and to insiders. And we keep doing that until one day, world peace literally happens. It literally happens. Here's Isaiah chapter 2, 2 through 5. I'm going to close on this passage. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his way so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks, meaning weapons won't be necessary anymore. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's do just that. Let's walk in the light of the Lord. Let's follow our Prince of Peace and let's make peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this gospel of peace and this message of Jesus and uh, just how radical the story is and how Jesus came and made peace with us. That even though we were foolish and envious and malicious and hateful, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And uh, it seems so foolish but your word says the gospel is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the wisdom of God. It's the power of God. And uh, we just thank you so much that this story you have invested to us to live out in our own lives. So I pray you give us the eyes to see how we can be living with peace, whether it's with our neighbors, with our classmates, with our coworkers with our friends, with our family members. Help us to notice 
when you are calling us to live with peace. Help us to uh, embody this gospel so that people may look at our lives and be able to see the gospel of peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.